Jim, thanks for coming back again. Nice to see you, Dave. Always In- a pleasure. Interview number two, Uganda, April. Now, that, it was fascinating how you narrated your adventures last time. And I, I personally got um, very excited when I, I listened to, back to all of this, mainly because of the point of view that I realised that this interview process was a success but also because of the point of view that I realised that the flow we have with all of this is really good. Yeah, it so, works. It works well. I was really pleased because I shared the first one with Mark, who I travelled with, and actually he came back and said he thought they sounded great and I was reasonably accurate <laughs> in what I could remember. So that's a bonus. So we're talking through your experiences of leaving Ethiopia and going into Kenya. So give everyone a description of where we're going with tonight's episode. So the journey we took, and, I, and my memory's a little bit sketchy, but, but obviously there's a lot that does stand out. Basically, we spent some time in, in Nairobi and then on the coast of Kenya, which I'm not going to talk too much about today. And then we headed northwest and crossed the border into, into Uganda, which is to the west of Kenya. Um, and we spent a bit of time in Kampala, which is kind of in the central east of the country, and then we headed west to a place called Kasasi, which is under the Ruinzori Mountains that sits on what's now the Congo border. And from there, we headed a little bit south to a place called Fort Portal, which is a well-known town in that part of Uganda. After which, we then headed southwest to a little town called Kasoro. And primarily, everyone goes down there when they want to cross into R- Rwanda, which then takes you down into Burundi and eventually Tanzania. So were you heading into Rwanda? Was that the idea? So ultimately, we were going to spend about a month or so in Uganda and then head southwest into Rwanda, yeah. Where were you going to go after Rwanda? Did you have any idea at that point? So we knew that ultimately we wanted to go to Malawi um, because Lake Malawi is beautiful. Mark had lived in Malawi for a bit, I believe, and his folks knew some people down there and we were like, let's go down to Malawi. And to get there, we needed to go through... Rwanda, Burundi, and then we went down down Lake Tanganyika on an old German steamboat, um, and then through Zambia, I think, and then Malawi. Wow! And then we headed back up to to come back up towards Kenya and Ethiopia. What an amazing experience! Yeah, yeah. So that was a long trip. So the bit I'm talking about today is really heading northwest into Uganda, central Uganda, west of Uganda, southwest of Uganda heading for the Rwanda border. Right, brilliant. First off, uh, you've um, you, you've summarised it by saying land of brutal dictators and revolution. So just explain a bit more about that. So I, I guess I guess the, the big sort of paradigm shift in our in our travels was we went from relatively kind of safe living with expats and Mark's parents were a bit in Ethiopia, etc. ended up in Nairobi where we had to start being like fully independent, basically, as two young travellers working out what we were going to do, where we were going to eat, how we were going to get from A to B. And we'd already, we planned to go to Uganda anyway, um, but in our blissful naivety, had sort of no idea what the travel conditions were going to be like there. Just to reiterate, you were 19 at this point, weren't you? Yeah, we were both 19 and like, you know, like like many people even today, probably if they, if they think of Uganda sort of 30, 40 years ago, they think of two things. Firstly, Idi Amin, the sort of brutal, supposedly cannibalistic dictator that was there for a number of years as president and booted out lots of Asians that had to move back to England. Um, and the other thing was was the the hostage crisis that 
occurred at Entebbe Airport, which was actually only nine years before Mark and I landed in Uganda. So those two things were quite sort of like uppermost in our minds when we went there in terms of, you know, what's this place going to be like? But conversely, when reading a bit of history of the area, I think it was Churchill who called Uganda the Pearl of Africa back in colonial days. It's it's like really green, really fertile, really beautiful. Um, and somewhere we thought, yeah, we should definitely go there. We're too near to, to, to not go. So the, the journey takes you where? <coughs> so we kind of landed in Nairobi first, um, had a few little adventures, which I'll tell you about. And then we headed northwest, which takes you up past some fa- quite famous places like Lake Naivasha and Lake Nakuru, which, you know, tend to be resplendent with flamingos, etc., etc. And it's really beautiful landscape, sort of you go sort of fairly near the Aberdeen Mountains, that kind of thing. And then eventually you hit the Ugandan border, uh, very close to a place called Jinja, which is the, the source of the Nile as it comes out of Lake Victoria. Uh, Lake Victoria being fed by the Ruinzori Mountains that sit on the border between West Uganda and what's now the Democratic um, Republic of Congo. was called Zaire back then. Um, and they're huge mountains that go up to 17,000 foot that I actually trekked in for a number of weeks of another year when I returned. Wow. Um, they're really spectacular. So yeah, that was exciting because it's quite a it's quite a historic part of Africa, the Great Lakes. Um, and obviously, you know, not a fan of colonialism, but if you've grown up as an Englishman in the sort of seventies and eighties, you know, those places feature in in history because that's where the British were, basically. Right. The um, you've sort of said um, Milton Obote. Can you explain about Milton Obote? Yeah. So so the history I I kind of learned ultimately was that. Like it, Milton Obote was the first prime minister, I believe, in who in the sixties when Uganda gained independence, he became prime minister. He ended up then also being prime minister under Idi Amin, who became president in the nineteen seventies, I believe, at some stage. And this is where I get a little bit sketchy with it. Um, but it was certainly nineteen seventy two when Amin kicked out all the British Asians because. The Ugandan economy was collapsing at the time post the British leaving and Asians were very successful at businesses and they became a natural scapegoat for Armin for all the economic woes that he was effectively in charge of and not sourcing out. Um, so he expelled them all. Um, now years later when we got there Milton Obote Armin had been exiled, you know, years previously, and Milton Obote was now the president of Uganda, and he was a vicious bastard. And actually, more people were brutalized, slaughtered, massacred under Obote than they ever were under Armin. And this right. is the thing that people often don't know. You know, Armin has this kind of, this very kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? But but kind of he's historically significant and a picture in most people's minds because of the gory stories, but actually more people suffered under Obote. When we were there, there was a war called the Bush War being fought, which was effectively a revolution from the inside, being fought in an area north of the capital Kampala in the Luera Triangle, being being led by Yoweri Museveni, who's still the president of Uganda today, 30 years on. Is he? Yeah, which is ironic because he was was definitely a sort of, a, um, a kind of, a man of the people back in the late 1980s and he fought this bush war for two or three years 
uh, when we landed, the, that bush war is, was in its kind of last sort of throes, if you like. And, the, and a year later, when I went back to Uganda, when I was a student, Yoweri Museveni was president by then. So we basically got there just when this revolution was kind of coming to its natural end and Obote's forces were being were being pushed down to the southwest, which was where the last front line was. Was there a lot of military presence then? So, so there was. I mean, one of the, you know, the first things we noticed when we got towards Kampala and certain areas around there was it, all the roadblocks were, were manned by heavily armed, fairly dishevelled soldiers. I mean, this was a pretty poor country by then that was economically pretty screwed um there were even instances like we were in a we were in a sort of matutu uh which is like a sort of knackered old taxi and we were sat in the car and i was wearing a cut off bob dylan t-shirt as i did in the day with long hair i think you mentioned that last time you and your bob dylan t-shirt and this guy appears at the window at a roadblock with a rocket launcher which he points in the car and says what are you doing here are you mercenaries and we're like no no we're just we're just like hanging out as tourists <laughs> which clearly was a pretty pretty strange thing for him to hear. And he said, are you a diplomat? And I was like, no, no, I'm definitely not a diplomat. So that was my first kind of like taste of, you need to really have your wits around you here because there's people here who are heavily armed who could just go any which way in terms of how they react to your presence. Right. The obvious fear being if you're white and male, you're probably a mercenary. Yeah. So... We had to be really, really careful about that. He must have just seen you were young lads, though, at the same time, you know. I think they realised that eventually because we, we, you know, we got a lot of help from police often, you know. we Because we were skint, we didn't have much money, so we were hitching most of the time and we didn't eat a hell of a lot. We never had enough money to buy beer. So we were often stood on the side of roads waiting for trucks or whatever to pick us up and take us to the next village. Um, and there's definitely a couple of times I found in my notes where the police were like, look, come and hang out at our roadblock and we'll stop a car and make them take you to the next town. <laughs> seriously? Yeah, seriously, because we're friendly and, you know, you'll, you've got a pack of cards and we can play cards and if we tell them to give you a lift, they will. Wow. You know, so that was kind of, you know, pretty ironic, really. Uh, I, I've done my fair share of hitchhiking in, my, in, in that era as well. But obviously not in Uganda, but certainly in, in the UK or Kenya, rather, you know, neither, but certainly in the UK. And... It's quite a leap of faith doing that, but doing a leap, that sort of leap of faith in a foreign country like that must have taken quite a lot of courage. Yeah, I look back on it now and I think, was it courage or was it completely blind naivety? I think it was more of the latter. I don't think we really had any idea what was going on in the country that, that, that we just entered. Um, and a lot of the stuff is, is hidden and was elsewhere out in the countryside and a lot of the the horrors that had gone on were sort of some distance from where we were. I mean, I went and visited some of those places a year or two years later when I returned to Uganda, and it was pretty horrendous, but that's a story for another day, probably. Um, the land of Entebbe, location of the Israeli hostage takeover, uh, taking on Air France jet only nine years earlier. I think I remember this, but I'm, can you explain a bit about that? Yeah, so it, it, was a, it was a major big deal in the news. Basically, um, I think it was an organisation called the PFLP, which is not dissimilar to the PLA, but it was a Palestinian so-called terrorist organisation. They would have called themselves freedom fighters, obviously. But yeah. they, they took an Air France plane hostage and they landed it at Entebbe and there were a number of Israelis I believe that were on the plane um, and 
at the time, Armin decided that he was, you know, politically on the side of these terrorists that had hijacked this plane. Mm-hmm. So he didn't really do anything to try and solve the situation. So it ended up with the the IDF, the Israeli Defence Force, effectively their army, deciding that they were going to go and liberate these people on this plane. So I think in the space of certainly not very long, like a few days, the these special forces from Israel travelled over to Uganda and actually attacked the airport um, and managed to free I believe most of the people bar about four hostages who died wow. um, I mean in typical fashion though the Kenyans had sort of supported the Israeli um, attempt to free people and Armin got cross with them and retaliated and at least two between two and three hundred Kenyans I think were then murdered in Uganda as a result no. just because of Armin you know and that was the kind of thing that we we, we sort of that was a real wake-up call that, that that kind of history and starting to see soldiers on the street and and hearing about certain things going on was a real kind of like okay this is this is this is not funny this is the kind of brutal side of how these countries roll occasionally when there's political lack lack of stability if you like what have we got here <laughs> nairobi after a close shave with the law and a dodgy hotel manager. So yeah, that was that was me and Mark kind of naively walking into situations again in Nairobi before we headed to Uganda and kind of getting away with it, but having a, a lot of fun in the meantime. I mean, obviously being you know big reggae fans and what have you, we were quite into our sort of um, magic snake in those days, um, and it was pretty cheap and quite a good quality out there. So I think we had rather too much of it in the hotel room and clouding your judgment. The, the fragrance <laughs> obviously clearly emanated from under the door to the attention of the hotel manager. Oh, okay. Who got to the point to say, "Said I'm going to phone the police." And we were like, okay, well, this is not going well. We've only been travelling for like two weeks since we left Ethiopia, and we're going to end up in a in a Kenyan prison, which isn't going to be very amusing. Oh, no. um, but ironically, um, you know, when we were like, please don't do that, he said, he said, well, I won't if you buy some weed from me. <laughs> oh no! So we had to negotiate our way out of that one. Um, yeah, so that was that was that was quite challenging. So we left the next day. Actually, we heaved off after that and crossed the border at is it Malaba or Malaba? Yeah, a place called in uh, Malabar, I think. Um, and from there, we sort of headed down to Jinja, which I believe I said earlier is the kind of source of the Nile, and then into Kampala, mm. which is which is the capital, and that's where we kind of I saw we kind of ground to a halt really for a bit because because. It was a bit of a rep Kampala and and you 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 start to kind of notice the sort of the frayed edges of these societies when they're at war and the economies are crumbling like you know sort of beggars in the street that are clearly seriously ill and there's no like services or health service or anything like that to pick them up and support them and there's just kind of death and injury sort of simmering around every corner and there were nights we stayed. We only stayed, I think, in Kampala a couple of nights, but certainly one of the nights there was a lot of gunfire we could hear at night. And very quickly we were like, okay, well, we just don't go out after dark. It's just way too dangerous. Mm. <clears throat> and we hadn't, you know, seen any other sort of white people for, for a long time. And that's fine. But, you know, we, and we couldn't find many places to eat. And 
you know, we suddenly felt quite a long way from home and it was a bit of a bit of a wake up call. Just imagine it now, you'd be there on TripAdvisor trying to find vegetarian restaurants well, this with was four the thing. stars. This was the thing. I mean, we had like the African or shoestring Lonely Planet Guide, which was the only thing that people used in those days. And, right. and, and those things have their advantages and disadvantages. They're, you know, they're quite helpful, but equally, there's a danger if you just read those like a Bible, you end up on the same <clears throat> route through countries as the rest of the world, which isn't necessarily a great thing. Um, but equally in places like Kampala, which had kind of broken down, there wasn't anywhere in the book that still existed. So can you describe it, like in a visual, <coughs> in a visual sense, what, would it, what did it actually look like? Sort of how, how, so if you, look at, if you look at Kampala from like a, a distance off, it's actually a really beautiful city because it's, it's set in amongst a number of little hills all around it. A um, bit like Newton Abbott, actually, but a bit more <laughs> exciting looking. Um, and obviously pretty tropical um, tons of banana plantations everywhere because that's a staple food Mateki the plantain banana and um, but the buildings were just like really knackered crumbling filthy dirty uh, the, the roads were totally shot to pieces you know mostly just mud and potholes what was transportation like? transportation um, generally pretty shocking um, around the cities they have these these little mini dormobile vans that shoot around and they just cram them full of people a bit like the classic pictures you see in India of 5,000 people hanging off the side of a mini <clears throat> you know um, that type of situation but that's the way we travelled and got around we just like squidged in with all the Africans and generally they were like who are these two white guys why aren't they in a nice land cruiser kind of with a UN t-shirt do you know what I mean what the hell are they doing rammed in here with their rucksacks because it was quite kind of that was quite crazy because we we basically like I said didn't have a lot of money so we had to sort of improvise yeah basically do what we could get around you, um, we've written that you saw the evidence of uh, the massacres in the Luero Triangle what do you mean by this so yeah, so that's pretty grim, really. But the bush war that I talked about earlier was which Museveni fought and eventually won to then become president the following year, was fought in an area called the Luero Triangle, which runs north from Kampala um, and is literally like a triangle of, of kind of agrarian African bush, villages, that kind of thing, very, no real towns or anything. And he fought a, a classic guerrilla war where he just hit with his soldiers in the bush and slowly over time, you know, had some successful offensives and t attacks and built more weapons and got more people coming to him. But there were two sort of pretty grim offshoots of this, apart from obviously a, a lot of people dying. Um, what often Abate's troops would do would, would be to raid villages in the area in retribution against Museveni and basically kill everybody they could find. And generally, the only people that could survive and get away were boys, little boys, because they jumped out of windows. All their parents threw them out of the back door and told them just to run for the hell of it as quickly as they could. So, so often it was only boys that would survive the families and then they would be taken on by Museveni's forces, which is why you had this quite notorious story of the time around boy soldiers. And when I went back to Uganda a year later... I frequently had my passport checked by nine, ten-year-old fully armed boys who'd been trained up as soldiers and looked after by the army. And it was only 
I think within the next two, three, four years after that, that they were sort of properly rehabilitated back into society and given an education and sort of, you know, de-traumatised and, and actually Museveni did a good job to rehabilitate them in the end. But but, wow. but the Luweri Triangle, back to your question, so there was the boy soldiers thing, which was pretty freaky. Um, but because so many people had been massacred, they created almost kind of... Um, what what what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of, not so much mausoleums, but almost almost kind of um, de- you know displays of skulls and human bones on the side of roads. So traditionally in Africa, as you're driving on the road, you'll have like a little a little sort of wicky sort of stand made of twigs and stuff with loads of fruit on it for sale, just like a homemade shelf. Um, but these had all been replaced with immaculate little piles of human skulls. So you drive along the road and you just see this thing with like 50 human skulls packed on it. Was it some kind of memorial or was it, yeah. a, was it a warning? It, no, it wasn't a warning. It was, this was after the war. This was a kind of like, this, this is what happened to us in this wow. area. Um, don't ever forget kind of thing. And I visited a couple of old school buildings where... Basie's troops had, had sort of massacred lots of people and you could still see the clothed skeletons like half buried in the ground and graffiti on the walls saying you know we're the Serosi boys and we're gonna we're gonna have your guts for garters kind of stuff. Are you feeling as though when you're observing this sort of atrocity you, you know how, how affected are you by that? So it's a good question because I mean I still think about those places quite a lot and I think this is this is my sort of it felt like it's just an education in terms of you know I guess politically this is what happens when you have a thing like colonialism which imposes its own political structures and bureaucracies and power situations onto countries where you as the colonialist don't belong and then you manage things and you rule over it with a rod of iron with your sort of weapons and your armies and your police forces which is certainly what all the colonialists did in Africa mm. you know the British were pretty brutal on occasions the Belgians were worse and so it goes on I guess, I guess the reason I ask is and then it collapses that's right um, they leave and it collapses and you get anarchy potentially right but also it was just an education in kind of you know that, that that sort of like civil and social breakdown just opens itself up to potential brutality. And you know, humans are humans are capable of great brutality and horrendous behaviour towards each other. I think the reason I ask is because when I travel as a photographer, one of the things that I found over the years was when I come across anything like this, I give an example photographing uh, inside Auschwitz is that I, when I'm searching for facts and I'm searching for examples, visual examples of um, you know, ways of describing where I am, I totally change mindset. And I found after listening to quite a few stories, for example, from those locations, whilst I was there, like maybe on a, on a, a guided tour around uh, the main Auschwitz camp, for example, that when I, when I left, and be travelling home on the train, it would only be then that it would fully start to sink in. And then maybe days later, I would remember, uh, you know, narrative from what I'd been told, and that would sink in again. And I always felt as though when I'm travelling and I'm doing things, as I never, 
I'm sucking everything in, but only afterwards do I fully emotionally sort of unravel what I've been seeing. Yeah, and I think it's the same for me. And I, I, I guess I went to those places. I partly went to the place I've described with all the kind of evidence of the war and the killings because I was staying with my girlfriend at the time. Her sister was a journalist living in Kampala and I was staying with her for a little bit. And she said, oh, you know, if you're sort of footloose with nothing to do for a few days, you should go up there and check this place out, you know, because it's kind of like... It's, it's full on and it's an eye-opener and if you want an education around how, what the world's like, you know, that's a place you could go. And that was the thing, I was kind of young and I was, you know, I, I wasn't like feasting as a tourism on, on the appalling suffering of other people. It was more like, actually, this is an education, this shit goes on in the world. Yeah. Like, if you see it, then you experience it, it may change your view of how the world operates and right and wrong and gives you a perspective on history and your own country's involvement in that history that you're not going to get in a classroom and you're not going to get it around a dinner table and you're probably not going to get it in the pub, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Feeling the heat and isolation, it's hard to find places to stay, uh, you mentioned, or am I going down the wrong road here? No, no, that's, yeah, that was was kind of the whole experience of Uganda was it was just hard work travelling there. But again, like everywhere else in Africa, it was kind of a mixture of it, it was hard work, but you you just come across the, the most fantastic humour and human kindness, you know, particularly in places where people don't have much and they'll they'll share the, the barest of meals with you. And the thing about Uganda was despite the fact that we we'd stumbled into a revolution and there was some grim stuff going on everywhere, anywhere you travel in Africa, there is just a soundtrack of African music going on all the time. Any vehicle, any coffee bar, anywhere you travel, there is this just really uplifting sort of African music kicking off. And and the Ugandans in particular love their love their music and they're very, very happy, smiley, jovial, humorous people. And that was another real sort of eye opener of how, how people maintain their sort of human spirit in the face of all this poverty and adversity war is fought by <coughs> yeah so very few at the top so we would you know like i said we would we, we we probably didn't have a lot of clue of what we were walking into um but but it but it was a real eye-opener and we had we had some pretty cool experiences i mean you know for example when we left kampala we, we were wanted to travel to the west of the country um and of course we were on a train it had no electricity it had no running toilet so we had to sort of we could only use a candle. We'd met up to with two or three other European travellers and we'd bought a ton of fruit. So we just kind of sat by a candle in this train going through the African night, you know, um, eating loads of bananas and pineapples and keeping ourselves going. And then we ended up in the West. And another classic example, we we all decided we'd head for this place called Bundi Budjo, which was sort of up in the hills on the, on the border with the Congo uh, near the Semaliki River. Um, in the middle of nowhere and again it was another of these times when these kids had like just never seen any white tourists I don't think they'd ever seen any white people some of these kids um, but we were out in this little place called Bundy Budjo and they um, they wanted to kick a football round us with us so five of us had a game of footy against basically the whole village um, <laughs> and it was just fantastic we were on this this makeshift football pitch with you know, the Congolese jungle stretching to the west below us for like thousands of miles, literally. 
and the ruins always behind us, you know, kicking a football around. Uh, and that was fantastic and really uplifting. And then two days later, we were stopped by the side of the road with no food and getting really sketchy because we started, get, you know, literally had no food for 48 hours oh. until we found a catfish and boiled it in a pan. And that was all we had for two days. It was pretty horrible. <laughs> found a catfish. What Someone sold us a catfish <laughs> for like half a dollar or something. Oh and God. our Norwegian mate that we were with, he was like, I can cook a catfish, it's fine. So we cut its whiskers off and boiled it in a pan. <laughs> dear, oh dear. Um, you said you... Um, I'm going to the section here that you, you're mentioning about uh, you heading west. Uh, is it... I can't pronounce it. It's about, it begins with a K. Is it Kaises or something Oh, Kaisesi. Kaisesi. Yeah, yeah. Explain a little, about, a little bit about what happened here. So, so Kaisesi is a beautiful place, actually. It's, I think it's pretty... I think it's where the train ended up. I can't remember. Um, but it sits below the Ruinzori Mountains, which are the, the mountains I mentioned earlier that go up to like 17,000 feet on the border with what's now the Congo. And I went trekking there like two two years later. Um, and it's a really, really extraordinary place because it rises to like 17,000 feet. It's right on the equator. So you get this sort of biological phenomenon called gigantism. So you get like heather, which grows into like 30 foot trees. Oh, okay. And groundsel, which normally sits at sort of a few feet, can grow to like 15 foot. Wow, well, um, And you get, you know, sort of forests full of incredible amounts of moss of different colours and huge variety and volume um <clears throat> so i didn't visit the mountains properly that year but that's where mark and i ended up and from there we went to a place called fort portal which was actually at the time really where the front line of of, of the bush war that was going on in uganda at the time that's where it ended up and it wasn't long after that that Obote's troops got pushed out down in the southwest and all got pushed off into, I think, Zaire, and some of them probably ended up in Rwanda. <clears throat> the 70 took, took control because we did have a sinister moment there when we got there when we were sort of bumbling around looking for a cup of tea somewhere and some guy in a Ford Escort, brown Ford. I remember it distinctly. It was a brown Ford Escort. And I remember at the time thinking, how come there's a brown Ford Escort here? That doesn't look normal. And this guy got out and um, basically demanded our passports and said, you're going to give me your passports. Asked who we were, said, I'm going to take them away. We need to inspect them, blah, blah, you know, stick around, come back to the police station later. Got out frightening. So we were obviously shitting it because we were like, you don't want to end up in East Africa with, with no ID. It's not cool. And um, and he was clearly one of the sort of special forces of, of, of Boaties, or the or intelligence or somebody because uh, he wasn't in military uniform but he clearly had clout because there were military people with him um and they took our passports but they fortunately gave them back later that day and it, was, it was at that point that it was beginning to dawn on us that maybe we should head south to rwanda and kind of go somewhere else you know yeah it's going too sketchy i've, I've had my passport held for it's a not few a hours. good feeling. No, I had it held for a few hours on my journey into Israel. I went from uh, from Jordan into Israel, and there was myself and my friend Bashar and Rachel, and we went, and they took our passports off us rather than checking them with us, and then they were gone for like about an hour. And I remember thinking, this is fine. I'm at an Israeli border. It's it's probably nothing, but but <coughs> the, the worst 
problem was this feeling that what if I don't get it back? What if something happens? And Bashar, on the other side, he's uh, Jordanian uh, and English origin. His mother was English, his father's Jordanian. And he was he was held up for over two and a half hours and they made him just sit on a chair outside yeah, of the office. scary. And, and then in the end, just like spent about 10 minutes asking him stupid questions and then left him another half an hour for, yeah, we had a, for we, letting him in. We had a number of occasions where we just kind of fell foul of the law. Again, like I said earlier, not through any malicious intent, just kind of being a bit naive, not really kind of knowing where we, we were at etc i mean there's another story i'll tell you another day where we hooked up with the guy because we were lost somewhere and trying to get into i think we were trying to get into kenya from tanzania or something but we hooked up with this guy who was basically smuggling red wine to dar es salaam <laughs> in tanzania and he was like look stick with me because i've got like canoes across the river sorted and there's a whole bunch of us so you'll be safe and um so we spent a couple of days walking with him and we ended up crossing the border at the wrong place and went to this police station to get a stamp in our passports to try and be good boys and they were like how come you're here without a stamp in your passport because we we're like well because we walked through the fields and through the forest and across that river and he was like you can't do that and we were like well we did he was like well you're gonna have to sleep here basically and i'll sort you out in the morning so i'm going home for dinner so we had to sleep out on the steps of the police station <laughs> relinquish our passports and like hang out and then the next day they sort of processed us and gave us a bollocking and said next time try and cross in the right place and sent us off so you those experiences i mean they're just unimaginable to to teenagers these days can you imagine being a teenager and like you know with all i wouldn't let my own daughters go and do the things that i did no chance but just think about the character building side of it at the same time. Yeah, really. I think so. I hope so. Resilience, the self-reliance, everything. Yeah, it definitely opened my eyes and it's definitely given me a sort of, you know, it's diff- it's given me insights into kind of human nature and, and kind of history and how politics play out when they go wrong and when people get greedy with power and do you know what I mean? All yeah. those kind of things. And e- even today... These days, you know, when, you know, whatever your political affiliation, but seeing Pretty Patel, the Conservative, what was Home Secretary, she isn't anymore, obviously, but she was that not that long ago, with a very strident sort of anti-immigrant position and wanting to ship refugees out to Rwanda, you know. So that in itself is a pretty shocking policy. But the, the great irony is that her parents were one of the Asian families booted out of Uganda by Idi Amin. Right. And had been welcomed into the UK with open arms and those people were given, you know, places to live and were, were, were enabled to kind of integrate into society and find work and all this kind of stuff. And well, yet there, really. she, there she is a generation later um, taking a very, very different start. So not only that, you know, putting in place a policy to send refugees to Rwanda, saying it's one of the safest places in the world. There's plenty of books out there about Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda, which will tell you a very different story. Yeah, I bet. So, so you've left Fort Portal and you're travelling west. So yeah, we left Fort Portal and we, we'd kind of hit there in the rainy season. So so that kind of added to the struggles because when it rains there, it like really seriously rains and everywhere's wet and the roads are bloody awful. 
And so we ended up wanting to head down to a little town called Kisoro, which is down near the Rwanda border. Um, beautiful part of the world. So we, we eventually got another lift in one of these crazy vehicles. There was about 36 of us, because I remember counting, and I've never forgotten. There were 36 people in the back of the pickup, the normal <laughs> little pickup that you get a 100 quid load of logs in. Yeah. Uh, 36 of us rammed in there, standing up with bags and everything else, totally unable to move. And we headed off down this road, which was basically kind of just a sea of mud. And, it, and, it, and eventually the, one of the wheels fell off the car. Um, the first thing we had to do was get out and push this thing out of the mud. And then I was only wearing flip-flops because I was a daisy hippie and didn't have any decent boots. Really. Of course. And um, what I discovered later, I got some weird thing in my toe, which fortunately I managed to get out. Otherwise, it could have been really dangerous. But that was the first time I learned some real good on the side of the road ingenuity mechanics because basically what happens is the bolts had, had kind of the thread on the bolts I think or the casing that the bolts went into to hold the wheels onto the hub of the car were knackered so to solve it the guy basically ripped the metal off the back of his ring, wing mirrors used a knife to to cut them into like inch wide strips and then beat them around the bolt that needed to go back into the wheel hub did that five times whacked them all in so he basically had a fatter bolt because it had metal banged around it and that was enough to hold the wheel on until we got to Kasoro, which was absolutely genius let me let me um flip it to namibia and say that when i ran my namibia tour in 2019 we had a problem with the truck we were just driving along going to sauces and at one point the truck just suddenly, you can hear it, the engine dipping and then suddenly whoosh, just nothing. It dips right down to nothing and we all come to a grinding halt. And I'm immediately like, oh God, what's happened? You know, there's 10 of us in this vehicle, 12 of us in the vehicle and two, two drivers at the front. And it turned out that they'd gone over a medium-sized rock and it had flicked up and smashed into the fuel filter. Oh, nasty. And it didn't just smash into the fuel filter, it knocked the thing clean off. So there's a big fuel tank and then there's a fuel filter. Then there's a tube, if you like, that goes all the way to the engine where there's another fuel filter uh, going into this diesel engine. And these guys struggled with this uh, repiping of the fuel for about 40 minutes. They were caked in fuel as well from trying to pressurize the system and get the fuel to suck through the tubing. And in the end, after making a phone call to a friend of theirs, uh, they worked out that well, the only way to do this was going to be to fix it by using the, the casing of a biro pen. So they put the biro pen in one half of the piping, cut the pipe, put the biro pen into the other. So they just trimmed the edges off and then, tried to, and then tried to seal it really tight. Yeah, genius idea. And, and it worked. Yeah, and they told And they told me about loads of other like ways of repairing vehicles when you're in trouble, which I had no idea about. There's the You, you may well have heard of this one, but when you have a hole in your radiator, you put an egg inside the water. And then what happens is, is that the egg seals the hole. <laughs> yeah, of course it does. Right, like that green sealant. Brilliant. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? The other, the other classic mechanical thing I remember was actually, it was actually on the coast, on the Kenyan coast, and we were getting a bus up to this island called Lamu, which is like way up off the east coast in the Indian Ocean, up near Somalia. And um, the bolts were so solid on, on these wheels that they, they couldn't get them off. And they had like a, 
you know, whatever it is, a screwdriver spanner thing, and they had a massive long bit of scaffold, which they'd fitted on, so they had much bigger leverage, but they still couldn't do it. And eventually, one of them obviously had a bright idea, came on the bus, because we were all sat on the bus, looked around the bus, picked the biggest, fattest bloke they could find on the bus, and said, we need you to bounce up and down on the scaffolding, because it's the only way we're going to release the bolt. So, so Big Blake gets off the bus and waddles over and they help lift him up onto the scaffold and then he bounced up and down and eventually it squeaked and it came undone. No way. So we sat there watching this guy bouncing up and down on the scaffold for half an hour. Classic. So that, that journey was, was, was pretty horrendous and like I was saying, I, it, never used, it never ceased to amaze me how you'd end up in these places in the pitch black of night because before they mended the wheel, they basically gave up on the journey that night and were like... It's dark and the headlights don't work and it's pouring with rain. So we'll just spend the night here. And me and Mark were like, where are we going to spend the night? You know, and um, everyone else just like melted off into the night. And we were like, where do these people go? Because there's no like lights anywhere or hotels or anything. But they must have places they can go where they must know people or maybe there's a village and, you know, whatever. So we just had to sit on the, on the truck in our anoraks and get wet. I mean, it was, at least it wasn't cold, you know, because it's Africa. But So, yeah, that was, so that was pretty full on. And then we, and, and so the only thing that managed to get us through the night is that we managed to pick up something to smoke from, weirdly, a pygmy village up near Bundy Budjo, the place we played footy at. I want to stop you there. What is a pygmy village look like? Well, I mean, the, the, there are, like, um, the Ntandi pygmies i think they are that live around the bundy budgie area in the ruins mountains um and i don't know why but they had a settlement on the side of the road where we'd hitchhiked up to this place bundy budgie i think because you know it's probably a bit sad they were probably like impoverished and kind of felt that was a place they could sell their wares and that type of stuff and we thought well we could you know go and visit and share what meagre supplies we have with them or something like that or just go and say hello out of interest um but they just appeared to be massive smokers of weed it was really weird it was like every single hut they were all in there just smoking away like huge volumes of smoke um so we did get a bit off them because we thought we might need it for the journey um but what does a pygmy look like they're just small as in how small um kind of i suppose i don't know average sort of four to five feet adults so tiny then i suppose yeah fairly small yeah um uh, what, do they look like? <coughs> what do they look like uh they just look like i guess standard africans yeah basically but yeah. just tiny yeah just smaller okay yeah yeah and they're forest dwellers basically so maybe they've evolved they you know to be safer and smaller i don't know actually um so yeah so that was that was pretty bizarre i mean our friend burra from norway got he he consumed way too much and we had to carry him out of the village which, which was a bit embarrassing because um, he couldn't walk um so yeah that was another experience which was which was pretty crazy um but eventually we ended up the next morning on this god awful truck, you know, the sun came up for about half an hour and then it started raining again. Oh. We managed, we got to Kisoro in the end and managed to, to kind of like clean ourselves up. And I had this really sore toe and I couldn't work out what was going on. And I looked underneath and it was just this kind of like weird red mark under my big toe. 
And I'd heard about these things called jiggers, which are basically like little sort of tiny little worm things that get into your bloodstream and then they lay eggs inside your body. Oh, good Lord. And if they do that, you can be in quite serious trouble because the eggs flow through your bloodstream and, you know, cause pretty major problems. Um, so I had no idea about this. I just thought I've got a weird zit on the bottom of my big toe. So I squidged it and like literally like half an inch of sort of weird white bits and pieces came out of my toe no. in a nice clean squidge um, left a large hole which I cleaned up and it was all right because we had these miraculous medicines that someone had given us in in um, <coughs> Mombasa it was a I think it was there anyway it was a bunch of mercurichrome and um, the stuff you use to bleach your hair Hyd- what's that called Hydrogen peroxide. Right, yeah. Yeah, so if you get... We learned that if you get a really manky hole in your foot in Africa, which is quite common, <clears throat> either from weird worms like I'd got, or from you hurt your foot on coral or something, which is full of bugs, you can get really nasty sort of pussy things going on on your body. If you put hydrogen peroxide on it, it fizzes all the badness out. <coughs> and then the mercurochrome like seals it all and stops it getting infected. It's genius. <laughs> So we had little <laughs> bottles of this stuff, so we used that. So I was all right. <laughs> so, so reflecting back on it now, I mean, really looking looking at it again from, you know, from this distance that you now sit. I mean, uh, what you know, what did you really learn from this whole experience? Be really, really careful about where you go on holiday. <laughs> um. That's being a bit facetious, but because yeah. actually it was a pretty amazing experience, and I've sort of fe- <coughs> fell in love with Uganda. Actually, and I've been back there in you know like any three or four years ago to actually do some proper work. So let me let me just talk about that then. Yeah, so so I mean, I went back every year for two or three years when I was a student in Edinburgh because it was cheap to fly, and I did some pretty cool stuff that I'll tell you about other days, like climbing up the Ruinsories and travelling around there a lot more on my own. Um, and then when I was working for a multi-academy trust recently, they had links with um, some people in Uganda and there was this plan to install an IT classroom into a shipping container in a primary school in a fairly remote village outside the town called Imbali, which is in northeast Uganda. And I happened to sort of land at this trust, having left the government for a couple of years, um, I think they knew I'd travelled in Africa before and they said, well, do you want to lead? Do you want to be the project lead and go out there with our IT suppliers who are providing the kit and meet our African contacts and go up to this place for a couple of days and install all these computers into this classroom? And I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> so uh, so that's what we did. So me and me and about three guys headed out, flew via Dubai, and I remember making, sending an emotional text message to my mate Mark when we were flying above Ethiopia because it was like 30 years later, you know, and you could send text messages from an aircraft at that stage at 30,000 feet. <laughs> it was mental. So I texted him going, guess where I am, man? I'm flying over Addis Ababa, you know. And anyway, so we get there. And then it was pretty crazy because we we're only there like three or four days. But, but yeah, we installed loads of PCs into this shipping cane container that had been brought up there. Um put in some cabling and stuff to the little hut next door to the switch and the servers to get the get the get the 
connectivity going and they have really good 4g connectivity in in parts of uganda now along the main road so as long as you're not too far from a mast on the main road you can actually get a pretty decent connection so that's what we used a little 4g cellular network and a little router rigged up these these machines and i kid you not absolutely what a mental change of resource for these local kids tons of them were coming in and like the older boys were coming in and girls and setting up their own google account that they'd never been able to do before so they could start like emailing and doing research and learning stuff and looking around for jobs in kampala and just this whole explosion of all this stuff that we're used to um they were suddenly able to do and the good thing was that there was a guy out there that the supply the it supply company trained up to be the sort of tech support so we knew that it could be maintained and looked after for some some years without sort of falling over did it feel in any way similar it some of it felt similar yeah um did you remember things when you were yeah i did yeah i did remember things i didn't remember kampala very well which was a bit weird i was thought i was was trying to remember the sort of central bit of kampala that mark and i'd stayed in but i don't i think we just didn't go there it seemed a lot busier um but i mean it was weird it some some bits were really developed like the chinese are making a lot of inroads into africa now and they built a bunch of roads you know so there was much better roads near the city but there was just there was still a huge amount of like just detritus and sort of filth and poverty and everything else there you know um and you know it was and and it was pretty similar to actually it hadn't really changed a lot in 30 years if i'm honest Mm -hmm. you know um it's definitely some things had changed but i was only i was only in a few places and we were only there a few days which was a bit of a pain really Mm. would have been good to have been there a few weeks and Mm. really moved around a bit more but i've maintained contact now with a guy called alvin out there he's a really good mate and you know we stay in touch and we talk regularly and he'll come and stay one day and I'll get you to meet him. You'll love him. He's really funny. Um, really, maybe another return at some point. Yeah, and go back there. And Layla's talked about going back there to do some voluntary stuff. You know, I'd love one of my kids to go back there and mm. they'd be looked after by Alvin and his family. And he does amazing work out there for an organisation called Impact Uganda. You know, they do a lot of development work with with people in communities there. Um, they're, really, they're really great people. So I'd love to do more. I just don't know what, mm. you know. No, interesting. Thank you ever so much. <coughs> Pleasure. You're, I just thought I'd mention to everybody that you're just getting over COVID. I am just getting over COVID, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good disease. <laughs> it's not a good disease. It's not as bad as malaria. I did get that out there one day. Another I'll tell story. you about that another day. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Jim. Pleasure.